0: The French offensive would be greatly aided by a simultaneous offensive of the British forces between the Somme and Arras. I think that it will be a considerable advantage to attack the enemy on a front where for long months, the reciprocal activity of the troops opposed to each other has been less than elsewhere. The ground is, besides, in many places, favorable to the development of a powerful offensive. General Joseph Joffre, French Army, commanding. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, Episode 2, Allied Strategy. Before we get started, just a quick admin note and uh, clarification. In the intro episode, I said the following. I will strive to cover each battle consistently by having the necessary episodes written and recorded beforehand. so this is what happens when you go on a little sleep for weeks at a time and think that there won't be uh, any consequences. Um, you repeat something that you wrote weeks ago and don't connect that you really should not have said it or you should have revised it. Here's, here's what's happening. For the psalm battle, I am still feverishly reading and writing episodes. For the future episodes post-psalm, I will look to have everything done beforehand so that I can release on a regular schedule. As far as posting episodes for our journey through the Battle of the Somme, I am just going to put them up as soon as I have them completed. So releasing will not be on a strict schedule, at least not for the, the Battle of the Somme. Okay, throughout 1915, the Somme front featured none of the major offensives that took place that year in France. But we would be wrong to think it was quiet there. It was not. It may not have been the hellish sectors of the line like Ypres, Luce, Saint Eloi, Neuville, Son Vas, Vauquois, or Les Eparges. So I guess that would mean it was cushy, but it still wasn't quiet. As the winter of 1914 to 1915 gave way to spring 1915 and weather conditions improved, the movement of men above ground became much more dangerous. That live and let live policy that we talked about at the end of episode one continued, but as the rainwater drained and the muddy trenches dried, reasons for being above the trench line became thinner and thinner. One effect this had for both the muddy, dirty German Frontkämpfer and the muddy, dirty French Poilu, was that the war moved underground. Mine warfare became a regular pastime on the Somme. This is where you dig a mine under no man's land and hopefully all the way under your enemy's frontline trenches. Once that's done, you pack the business end of the mine shaft with thousands of pounds of explosive. Detonate all of that in an apocalyptic earthquake and send your enemy to kingdom come while obliterating his trenches. You then move to occupy the crater. So let's consider this for a, for a moment here. Imagine you're a frontline soldier. Doesn't matter which side. Imagine you've survived the miserable winter, the rain, the cold, the random and not random shelling, the night patrols, and the hunched over rushes to get to the muddy, wet, and lice and rat filled trenches while praying the other guy on the other side doesn't shoot you today. You have all of that to worry about. Now, death doesn't just come from across no man's land or from a shell high above anymore. Now it can also come from right under your feet at any second, the enemy might blow the mine they've been digging for weeks right under you, literally obliterating you and your buddies from existence. Sure, your side is countermining in order to stop the enemy, but have they located every mine out there? Mining became a thing, a terrifying thing. South of the Somme, the front line running Vermandovier to Fay to Dompierre became a regular scene of man-made earthquakes that sent tons of earth, men, and material flying into the air. North of the Somme, the major mine warfare area became the sector from Mametz Village to Fricor to La Boiselle. At Shell Farm, near La Boiselle, also known as Granathof to the Germans. Between April of 1915 and January of 1916, 61 separate mines were blown. The mass of craters that had been the farm was later christened the glory hole by the British Army. This went on as trench warfare continued and developed ever further. There may have been no big offensives on the Somme in 1915, but there were plenty of smaller ones. In June, a furious French attack at Serres tore a two-and-a-half-kilometer-wide hole in the German trenches there after a punishing bombardment. Ten days of fighting followed as Poilu's first wrenched Touvent farm from German hands and then fought to hold on to it. They did hang on to the farm, but no other ground could be gained. Along with being a hotspot for mining Fricot village was also a scene of constant back and forth infantry attacks. French and German troops blasted away at each other for control of the heavily shelled and cratered ground surrounding the ruins of that village. It was getting clearer and clearer to the men on the ground that static warfare was how the war would be fought. Modern warfare with its machine guns and artillery gave the advantage to the defender territory gained had to be measured in hundreds of meters. Casualties were horrendous. Even with these scenes of intense combat, life on the Somme front did have a routine to it. When not being shelled, shot at, or out on patrol, the average poilu and Frontschwein spent the days laying low and the nights digging. A real quick, Frontschwein means front pig in German. It's what the German troops call themselves. There was always more digging needed. Digging new trenches, new dugouts, repairing dilapidated trenches, or digging out ones that had been blown in by shelling. Life on the Somme was very nearly the same as when the lines froze in the chalky ground the previous autumn. Very nearly the same, that is. Until the British 3rd Army steadily relieved and took over the line north of the river. This was part of the UK's effort to make a bigger contribution to the war in France. The British 3rd Army, under the leadership of General Charles Monroe, a fighter who'd been in France since the previous summer, changed life on this forgotten sector of the Western Front. The live-and-let-live policy between the French and Germans ended where the British now held the line. The Germans noticed right away. Whereas Franz, what they called the French, was devastatingly accurate with his ranged-in guns. The English, all British troops were English to the Germans, no distinctions. The English sprayed airburst shrapnel shells all over an, an area. Airburst shells exploded in the air and sent a hornet's nest of hot shrapnel down on enemy troop formations and positions. Kaki now replaced the blue and red of French troops on night patrols into Niemandsland, and the small-scale combat actions continued. When there were no small-scale combat actions, the British kept up a rate of small arms and artillery fire pouring on the Germans so heavy that one enemy officer remarked the French had, for the most part, kept quiet at night. Suddenly, sentries were maintaining a lively rate of fire, which from early morning until it was light, grew into the planned firing of salvos, so much so that it seemed as though an infantry battle was taking place. Under these new conditions on the Somme front, the Germans and their new adversaries had to work out new rules. With all of the constant shooting and shelling, one of the new rules of Anglo-German interaction came to be called revenge fire. The gist of which was, mess with me, man. Oh my God, I am so going to mess with you. A Landwehr Leutnant Gerster explained revenge fire pretty well in Jack Sheldon's The German Army on the Somme. Gradually, a type of unwritten understanding developed between the artillery of the two sides, and they stuck to it. If the enemy fired on Posier and Grandcourt, we fired on Autouille and Amel. If we brought down fire on Avelouille and Menil, revenge arrived in Martenpuix and Corselet. If the guns of 28th Reserve Division questioned the busy traffic at Albert Station, the enemy replied to ensure that we did not lack for anything at Earless halt. Days such as 1st November, when only four shells fell on the brigade sector were indeed a rarity. On the other hand, there were ever more days when more than a thousand shells landed unpleasantly. As stated above, the British Third Army took over the Somme Front north of the river to expand Britain's growing war effort on the Western Front, as well as to assuage French grumbling, in particular that of French General Joseph Joffre that les Anglais weren't doing enough for the Allied cause. Many French military leaders mistrusted their new ally. The Brits and French had just signed the Entente Cordiale about a decade earlier. And the British claim of being in it to win it. This mistrust is fairly reasonable. Everyone knew Britain's preferred foreign policy was to not get involved in continental dramas and if they did have to, to ensure the British Empire profited from said involvement. That and the French had been enemies of the English for centuries. The resulting grudges were kind of hard to put to the side. Furthermore, this thing now being called a world war was not going the way anyone had planned. I have read that wars are easy to start, but that once loosed, tend to take on a life of their own. This was certainly the case with the Western Front of the First World War. For the French army, the French government, and the French people, it most definitely was not turning out how anyone had planned. 1914 had turned out to be a barely contained disaster. 1915 had started with the optimism that New Year's bring, but it was being discovered that the trench deadlock wasn't just part of a winter break for the Allies and the Germans. The stalemate wasn't breaking, and every time the French and British attacked, the stalemate seemed to make itself deeper, like a snake coiling itself tighter around its victim. 19,500 square miles of France lay under a terrible German occupation and the hated Bosch had dug himself in comfortably with no plans to go anywhere anytime soon. Very shrewdly, they put the burden on the Allies of ejecting them out. Otherwise, they'd hold the line until they'd finish with the Russians in the East. So in early spring of 1915, Joffre launched huge attacks, both in the Artois and the Champagne regions. The much-reduced British expeditionary force, now being steadily replenished as the volunteers of the previous summer arrived in France, launched independent but small actions at Neuve-Chapelle, Aubert Ridge, Festubert, Givenchy, and Luce. There was little or no coordination between the French, the British, and the Belgians, however. The Belgians just wanted to hold on to what little of Belgium they had left until the French and English liberated the rest of their country. The BEF, under the less than inspiring leadership of Field Marshal Sir John French, was to ultimately answer to London, but French many times caved to Joffre's relentless guilting that the BEF needed to be doing more but with the responsibility to answer to the politicians across the channel, there remained no concerted effort between the French and British armies. Then in April, General Erich von Falkenhayn, commander in chief of all German forces, authorized a surprise attack using gas at the Ypres salient in Belgian Flanders. This caused the allies no small amounts of stress as the frontline trenches crumbled under German assault. But one month and 100,000 casualties later, the crisis had been stopped. The Germans had managed only to push the salient back towards Ypres, some three miles, and introduced the world to the horror of chemical warfare. The effect of modern industrial warfare was being shown to the belligerents time and again. In this war, there would be no decisive breakthrough followed by a spectacular showdown battle a la Waterloo. There would be no neat and tidy ending here. The armies engaged on the Western Front were of such size that no one single battle would break them. That type of victory would be impossible. and Slowly, the Allies were coming around to the idea that attrition was the only real solution. The German army would have to be ground into the dirt, with time and constant pressure. Not everyone understood that yet though. In the fall, Joffre slammed his soldiers against German lines in Artois and Champagne again. These offensives were examples of what we think of World War I today. The long preparatory artillery fire that gave away all surprise the frontal infantry assaults against battered but resilient fortified positions, impossibly heavy casualties, and the shifting of the front line by a few kilometers this way or that. The French army bled another 145,000 Poilus in the fall for what could only be termed negligible gains. And the trench deadlock remained stronger. In fact, than before. 1915 had come, and 1915 was going with no resolution to the war in sight. The year had seen France hemorrhage 1.6 million of her sons as casualties, most of these on the Western Front, for no appreciable change in the front lines. The United Kingdom and its dominions had suffered nearly 300,000 killed, wounded, missing or prisoner, for equally little gain. The Germans, too, hadn't had any more luck with their surprise gas attack at 2nd Ypres. They were as mired in the mud and blood as their enemies. The Kaiserreich had bled out nearly 900,000 of her sons in France and Flanders just to hold the line. General Joseph Joff considered his options as his second Champagne offensive broke itself against the German army's second line of defense. True, none of his massive and massed attacks had made much headway, but he could always reassuringly tell his political overseers, who exercised no way near enough control over him, that he was engaging in grignotage, nibbling at the enemy, wearing down his reserves with attrition. Okay, Let's talk about Joffre. I'm largely recycling what I said about him in episode one of the Battle of Verdun podcast, but we should cover him here as well. I do feel more sympathetic to Joffre now than when I did during the previous podcast, so here we go. Joseph Joffre was born into humble peasant origins in 1851 one of 11 children in the family of a cooper. He went the military route, and at 19, he found himself commanding an artillery battery during the Siege of Paris in the Franco-Prussian War. After 1871, he had a long career as an officer serving in France's colonies across the world, from Africa to Indochina. Though he had first gone to military school for artillery, he served in the colonies as an engineer, And he made a name for himself by being very organized with supplies for his troops. To give the man credit where it is due, here was Joffre's strength. He was a good organizer, extremely skilled at logistics. Also, any improvements to French border fortifications and heavy artillery up to 1914 were due to him. And he oversaw the passing of a conscription bill a year before the war started. Knowing that war with Germany was inevitable, he became a master of the French railroad system in order to more efficiently shuttle troops to the front. His organizational skill would see the harnessing of some 4,300 trains to move 2 million soldiers to the front lines in the first weeks of the war. In the early 1900s, he was sent back to France, where he briefly commanded an infantry division and then an infantry corps. He then went on to serve on the War Council, and a year after that became the Chief of General Staff, both of which were highly politicized positions. So when the war started, France had in command of its army a man who was good at supplies, but had little experience in tactics. But while he lacked the tactical proficiency he needed, he certainly did not lack in self-confidence. Drawing on his peasant origins, Joffre was a guy who thought with his gut. He has been portrayed as being that type of guy who would make a decision and think no more of it. He made a call and went with it. This is the mindset that watches 300,000 Frenchmen get shredded on the fields of northern France and Belgium and doesn't once think things could have been done differently or better. Of course, being a general is a difficult job. You know that even your best and most brilliant moves are going to bring a violent death and or terrible wounds to many of the soldiers under your command. It is an inevitability but Joffre ordered a preparatory artillery barrage and a massed infantry assault to follow that up. We can ask, well, what would you have done had you been in his 19th century shoes and facing a diabolical 20th century war? Still, Joffre didn't seem too fazed by the losses his army took. Even his biographer, a staunch supporter of Papa Joffre, would later admit the guy had little intellectual curiosity. But because his incredibly calm presence had overseen the French victory at the Marne in September of 1914, the big-bellied Joffre rode high in the public conscience, even as France watched the cream of her youth drain away forever. I am still on the fence about Joffre, and he probably deserves more research and a short extra episode on some World War I-related podcast dedicated just to him. Hopefully, we'll find someone who can do it sometime soon. One of the options Joffre studied was to plan another offensive, as big as the last one. He put out a memo to his army group commanders to start thinking of a new attack. When General Ferdinand Foch got the memo, he now being the commander of the Group d'Armée du Nord, or G.A.N., that covered the Somme front, he wrote back, an offensive to do what? Foch, probably vocalized what many others thought. But man, how prescient that question would turn out to be. To put a hole in the Joffre, the non-thinker idea, Another option he studied and had considered for some time was that of coordinating Allied strategy. It hadn't happened in 1915, but he wanted to make sure that it did in 1916. In order to really and truly wear down the central power's resistance capabilities, France, Great Britain, Russia, and Italy needed to plan on attacking Germany and Austria-Hungary at the same time to stress them to the breaking point and wear out their manpower reserves. Allies needed to attack together. It was the only way it would work. So that seems fairly thoughtful to me. With France in the driver's seat of the allied entourage, Joffre hosted the Chantilly Conference in early December of 1915. All of the allies' military representatives agreed to Joffre's proposed strategy. It was this conference combined with Joffre's earlier idea of a new offensive that gave birth to the idea for the Battle of the Somme. After the Chantilly conference, the French army came up with the outline for the next major attack against the Germans on the Western front. It was to be a joint effort between the British and French armies the first of its kind, since the war had begun a year and a half before. The offensive would come in two phases. Under Joffre's command, the first phase would be assigned to the British to make sure they stepped up to the plate and started doing their full share of fighting and dying. Their job would be to launch an attack to wear out the Germans, to get them fixed, fighting and rushing their reserves to the battle zone where they could be systematically destroyed. Joffre wanted the British to do the donkey work of the new offensive, this wearing-out attack being the ugly and unglamorous battle of attrition. He also wanted to make doubly sure they did their part by having them take over the French 10th Army's sector on the Arras Front as well, thus freeing up that French army for the attack. With the Russians and Italians also attacking on their respective fronts as the British held the Germans in place in France, the French army would then step in and rupture the Western Front with a massive force. It was still hoped for that there'd be a big breakthrough at some point, despite all the evidence to the contrary. This time, though, the French told themselves they could have both the reality... And the dream. They'd do attrition, and then they'd break through the German lines. It would be great. General Foch's question of an offensive to do what was being answered vaguely with, an offensive to do everything. It'll be all things. This is, in my opinion, the biggest problem that made the Somme battle such a muddled operation. As we shall see, no clear strategic goal will ever be given to the proposed defensive. How can a military operation, or a business plan, or any plan for that matter, succeed when you don't really know what the end goal is? But, there it was. The site chosen for the French rupturing of the part of the offensive was the area south of the Somme for the reasons quoted in the opening of this episode. For the British attrition attack, the 3rd Army sector north of the Somme was seen as the best area as it was reasoned the BEF could only attack on a narrow front. This worked out well because the Somme was where British and French forces physically met on their side of the trench line. The French would make the main effort, and the Tommies would support. But Joffre had to sell the plan to the Tommies, in particular to their new field commander, General Sir Douglas Haig. Haig took over command of the British Expeditionary Force in late December 1915 after Field Marshal Sir John French was ousted by complicated ineptitude and military court politics in which Haig himself had had a rare but strong hand. So, perfect time to talk about Haig, because we will be talking about him a lot for the Somme and for a lot of other battles as well. The image we have of Haig today can largely be summed up with this joke I heard some time back. Who was the best German general of World War I? Douglas Haig, he did a better job of killing British troops than the Germans did. Once you read more about him, you may think otherwise. He's complicated, much like everybody else. True, he did make an entry in his diary on the evening of the 1st of July, 1916, that the estimated 40,000 casualties believed taken by his army weren't so bad in light of the day's successes. Both points here were wrong. But it was a diary entry, and with the nature of diaries, I don't think he'd be going out telling everyone that what he had written in it. And yes, he also was not above blaming the troops when plans didn't work out. But he's far more complex a man than the image we have of a cold, stiff butcher who cared little for losses and only wanted his dashing cavalry breakthrough on the western front. General Sir Douglas Haig was born in 1861 into a well-off family of Scottish whiskey distillers as the 11th of 11 children. As a young man, he had asthma, and academically was seen as no great genius. Nevertheless, he went off to study in Bristol at Clifton College, but the asthma kept him from completing his program and graduating. Despite that asthma, he was a passionate sportsman, especially loved riding horses. A few years after Clifton, he enrolled at Oxford, where he did as well in the classroom as he did on the polo field. He represented England against the United States and won. All well and good, but I'd like to see him try baseball. In 1884, he enrolled at the Royal Military College, Sandhurst, and began his military career just shy of his 23rd birthday. Haig adapted very well to military life. And with his love of horses, he was naturally assigned to the cavalry, the branch he'd be identified with for the rest of his life. Even though he was a cavalry officer, Haig's real strengths were as a staff guy. In one of his first assignments, he was given the job of regimental adjutant. Basically, the regimental staff officer or in U.S. Army positions, that of the S3 officer. He got this job right out of Sandhurst. It was obvious Haig had talent and was destined for great things. Haig was known as a hard worker, but also aloof. He didn't make many friends among his peers. What he was was very shy, a lifelong trait, but under that shyness was a young man who was very confident in himself and his abilities. He was destined for great things, and young Haig intended to be in the right place at the right time to do those great things. The root of his belief in his destiny was his deep, deep faith. Haig's mom had been a Presbyterian holy roller who made sure her kids went to church every Sunday. His religious upbringing carried on into his adult life, and his faith inculcated a belief that he was on earth to fulfill God's intended role for him. Now, this doesn't mean that Haig saw himself as the incarnation of the Archangel Michael and that he was leading the armies of heaven in battle. What he did see was himself being on earth and that it was for a purpose. And he firmly believed that purpose was being the commander of the British Expeditionary Force in France. He was also a solidly professional soldier. Contrary to the myths that he was uninterested in modern weaponry and warfare, he visited the factory where the Vickers machine gun was being manufactured. And on leave, his own personal time, he went across the channel to watch the French and German armies hold their respective exercises. He served in India, back home in England, where he helped develop standardized army regulations even as a junior officer, and was then assigned to Egypt and the Sudan. In the Sudan, he saw combat and distinguished himself well. He also made himself known to Lord Kitchener, who was leading the expedition into the Sudan. Then came service in South Africa during the Boer War, where Haig found himself a de facto brigade commander. In this nasty and brutish war against Boer insurgents, Haig proved his ability to lead men in combat again. And at war's end, he was given command of a cavalry regiment. His time in the Sudan and South Africa put him on King Edward VII's radar. And over the next few years, Haig traveled in the king's court circles and rose in rank to major general. The two did not necessarily go hand-in-hand, for Haig was an adept staff officer. But by moving in those court circles, Haig met a Miss Dorothy Vivian, one of the Queen's ladies-in-waiting. They got married like two days after they met. Seriously. But Major General and Mrs. Haig were to be a lifelong unit, very happily married with four children. And man, that's actually kind of nice to hear. So all of this will now be grossly oversimplified. With the changing geopolitical situation of the early 20th century, it was recognized that the British Army's days of being a police department for the empire's far-flung colonies were coming to an end. The Germans were making ever louder noises about their rightful place in the world, and the Entente Cordiale signed with the French in 1904 meant that someday British troops would be involved in some kerfluffle on the continent. As is the way things go with politics in peacetime, no one really wanted to make these changes, and they wanted even less to have to pay for them, so change was very slow and very reluctant. But a new Secretary of State for War one Richard Haldane, was hired and he intended to make these changes happen. He also wanted a military officer with the right skills, energy, and determination to help enact this transformation of the British Army. Douglas Haig, the rising star, was tapped for the job, and from 1906 through 1909, he worked with Haldane to build a potential British expeditionary force ready To go anywhere in the world and a territorial reserve to support it. By 1912, now Lieutenant General Haig ascended to command the Aldershot Garrison, the home of the British Army. From this position, Haig oversaw the units assigned to the new BEF, and he worked energetically to prepare them for war. It was his job, after all. When that nebulous bogeyman called War actually came in summer 1914, Haig took his Aldershot units to France as the BEF's First Corps. First Corps performed well in the chaotic opening months of the war from Mons to the Marne, to the End, and to the First Battle of Ypres. In November of 1914, Haig was promoted to General and with the expansion of the BEF, he gained command of the British First Army. Through 1915, Haig was in overall command of most of the British attacks against the Germans on the Western Front, like Neuve-Chapelle and Luce. It was at Luce that Field Marshal Sir John French withheld reserves purposely when they were desperately needed. There's so much more to this story, but I don't want to digress too much. The really short version is Sir John French really wasn't very good at his job at commanding the BEF. All of the officers under him knew it and French and Haig did not care very much for each other by 1915. So after Luce became a bloody disaster, Haig went political and made sure his complaints about Field Marshal French's lacking leadership made it to the King's ears. French was removed and on 19 December 1915, Haig was made commander of the British Expeditionary Force in France. As soon as he took up his new post, he was immediately presented with the proposed grand strategy for 1916 and the part the BEF was to play in it. When Joffre informed Haig of the plan for the upcoming joint offensive, He glided over the details of the attritional battle the British would fight and focused on how the Somme Front would be the best choice for the new attack. Joffre didn't want the British to back out for any reason. He also wanted the attack made in March, or if that wasn't possible, at least sometime in the spring. Joffre said the Somme would be a great area in which to attack because the activity there had been less than in other areas of the Western Front. In a sense, he was correct. Because there hadn't been any previous major offensives on the Somme, this sector didn't have what historian John Keegan called the scar tissue of previous attacks. The improved trench networks of first, second, and third trench lines with strong points the Germans had developed in Artois and Champagne after the attacks there but if a little more reconnaissance had been done, or if he'd properly studied what was available, he would have seen that on the Somme, the Germans had been no slackers there. They had spent all of 1915 doing nothing but digging, digging, and more digging. First, when the trench lines had been dug across Picardy, the Germans had made damn sure they seized all the high ground available. Second, Since 1914, the Germans had been digging in and digging down, creating one of the most complex and sophisticated, interlocking and mutually supporting trench defense networks seen up to that time. It was kind of like the Germans said, hey guys, we haven't been attacked here yet, but just in case they do think of attacking, let's build like the world's most complex defense system right here. We'll cover... The German defense is more in depth at a a later point. From December 1915 through mid-February 1916, the French and British generals communicated back and forth, hammering out exactly what was to happen and when. Haig personally didn't care for the individual Frenchmen he worked with, but he did hold France and the French army in high regard. He understood that France was suffering the crushing brunt of the fighting, bleeding, and dying on the Western Front. Haig also understood that the BEF, now a healthy one and a half million men under arms as of January 1916, needed to do more to help win this war. Haig agreed to the joint attack. Lord Kitchener, the British Secretary of State for War, had told him his job was to be as supportive of the French as possible, but to remember that Haig ultimately answered to His Majesty the King's government, not the French. So Haig said yes to Joffre, but kept dates vague for the time being. Also, if he was to do the wearing out part of the offensive, he wanted to do it by striking out from the Ypres salient in Belgium his preferred place to fight. That idea, though, was soon out. King Albert of the Belgians was very clear when Haig requested permission to attack there. His response was something like, hell no, not in my backyard. So, with Flanders out, the third army sector north of the Somme it would be. In reality, at least this meant the joint attack would be made literally shoulder-to-shoulder now and along the 40-kilometer front Joffre and Haig wanted. Over the weeks, troop numbers, local objectives, and planned dates of attack changed as these things have a way of changing. Finally, on February 14, 1916, Generals Joffre and Haig agreed to the following On July 1st, both the British and French would attack astride the River Somme. North of the river, the BEF would hit the Germans with 25 infantry divisions for the attritional battle that would hold them in place and start bleeding them out. South of the river, the French would power slam the Germans with 40 infantry divisions, looking to smash right through the trench lines. French would be the main effort with the BEF supporting. Upwards of one million men would be involved in the attack. The only thing left up in the air was the previously agreed British relief of the French 10th Army at Arras. Other than that, everything was largely cool. Joffre had to be psyched. He had full participation from the British and his strategy was coming together. Haig, too, had to be pleased. The BEF was stepping up and launching probably one of the biggest attacks in the history of British arms. And he was the man in charge, right where God wanted him to be. And then, a week later, the Germans attacked at Verdun, blowing everything to hell. Yep, it's true. So... We're gonna leave it right there. Next time, we'll get into the effect the Battle of Verdun had on the Somme, as well as the on-the-ground preparations for this massive World War I battle from the view of both sides of no man's land. The German army knew it was coming and they did not sit by idly and wait to be obliterated. All right, any questions, comments, or concerns? please hit me up through the website www.firstworldwarpodcast.com or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Not into social media? Email me directly at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. I just have to say, the top highlight of this and the previous Radon Project has been hearing from you folks out there and being able to talk with others as passionate about history as I am. Recently, I was even able to talk World War I with listener Bob over burgers and a couple of beers. I mean, how much better does that get? Listener Clark has also provided me with video-making services that are incredible, as well as showing me how to properly write an email to a friend. I have met some incredible people through doing these podcasts and that has made all of this so very worth it. Thank you guys so much. If you have enjoyed the podcast so far, please consider reviewing it on iTunes. The more reviews, the more visible the podcast becomes and that helps get more and more folks involved. Also, if you would like to help the support the podcast with a financial contribution to help run and maintain it there is a paypal button right on the website where you can make a donation of your choice again the website is www.firstworldwarpodcast.com i would like to thank everyone who has already contributed lastly thank you so much for taking the time to listen Talk to you again soon. Take care.